I told I told Mary, you know, I like to met her and, and Bob he said, you know, he'd like to know all your history and everything. I was like, he'd go take introduction of a speaker and Millie said, Just tell him this old drunk Millie. So I'll give you old drunk Millie from Skill Devil, Hill, North Carolina. Good morning. My name's Millie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Bear with me. I'm always nervous when I first get up here, but once I feel the love from the audience, I sort of calm down. So you sort of bear with me and say a little prayer. You know, I'd love to be able to stand up here and tell you that I was a lady when I drank. And then I passed there very gracefully in my own living room. But you know, when I, the first thing that I was taught in Alcoholics Anonymous was honesty. And I can't honestly tell you that I was that type of drunk. I was a two-fisted Irish fighting drunk. I loved a good argument and a fight when necessary. <laughs> And I got into a lot of them. I'm a big book gal. This, I found all my answers in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the big book tells me that I must tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And this I'll try to do. I took my first drink at the age of 15. Now first let me tell you this. <laughs> I was born and raised in Virginia, and all Virginians are basically snobs. <laughs> We're born that way. We're taught from the age of three on up who our grandparents were, who our great-grandparents were. And I don't know how many of you saw Roots, but after I saw Roots, I don't want to dig back too far in my family. <laughs> But I, as I said, I took my first drink at the age of 15. I'm going to date myself. It was back during the corn liquor days. And I was babysitting for a family. And the host and hostess, when they returned, brought friends with them. And typical of a teenager, I was most interested in what the host was doing. And he was mixing drinks in the kitchen. And it was alcohol and grapefruit juice. And he asked me if I'd like to have one, and I said yes. I had never seen liquor served in our home, a little wine maybe on holidays, but I had never seen real hard liquor. And I took my first one. The second one I asked for, the third one I stole, and I went home cropped for the first time in my life. Now, I could almost end my story right there, because I was the type of drunk that every time I drank, I got drunk. I knew nothing about social drinking. The only thing I knew about social drinking, I could be darn sociable if you had a Bible, and that was the end of that. I talk a lot about my Isaac because he's important in my life. Now, I'm not saying any of these things caused my alcoholism. It was my reaction to them. 
I was a rebel all my life. But I met my Isaac when I was 18 years old. And he was the most handsome man that I ever laid my eyes on. He's still the most handsome man I ever laid my eyes on. He sort of shrunk up a little. So <laughs> I don't see this. You might, but I don't. But I, I don't think it's a woman in this room that doesn't know what I'm talking about. I was in love for the first time in my life. Now, I'm going back many years ago. In Virginia, Isaac was a Jew, and I was raised a Catholic. And this was not accepted in Virginia either. My father was in the tugboat business, and my father was out at sea, and we caught it for some six months. And when my dad returned, of course, he was interested in who I was courting. And of course, the moment he found out Isaac was of the Jewish faith, he immediately got rid of Isaac. Isaac, being the type of man that he was, would not see me without the permission of my family. And I was heartbroken, like any young 18-year-old girl. I had lost the man I loved. Now, a short time after this, I had friends drop by the house, and in the group was a service man. Now, I don't know how many of you were in Norfolk before World War II, but nice girls didn't associate with the Navy. And my father had made this person clear to me that if he ever caught me with a sailor, what he'd do. Well, the man was in civilian clothes, and I did not realize he was in the service. But a couple of weeks later, I was working and going to school, and he walked in the drugstore and introduced himself. I did not recognize the man. And he had just bought a new car. And he wanted to know if I wanted to see the car. And he had a bottle of gin. And he suggested that we go to the 30th Division Club. Now, this was a place that my girls didn't go. It was in Portsmouth, Virginia. But I heard the girls whispering about it in school, and I was very interested in what was going on in the 30th Division Club. So I accepted the invitation. Well, the bottle ran out, and we got another bottle, and he began to shoot me the line that most older men shoot young ladies. You know, I fell in love with you the first time I saw you, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Let's get married. Now, I think this is when my alcoholic thinking started. I thought, you know, this is a way to get even with the captain, get even with Isaac. I'll marry this joker. Now, I don't know how many of you are in here that are new, and how many non-alcoholics are in here. If your spouse tells you that they don't remember, believe me, they don't remember. Because I remember nothing of that evening. You see, we couldn't be married in Virginia. We had to be married in North Carolina, and we drove down to a very small town. The only thing I can remember, when we arrived there, I didn't know what to do with the bottle. I thought if we leave it in the car, somebody might steal it. I don't want to hide it. I might not be able to find it. So we sat it right in the middle of the sidewalk so we'd be sure to see it coming out. 
Now that's alcoholic thinking. I awakened the next morning to this horrible voice singing Amapola, and I was frightened to death. I opened one eye, and at least I, I was grateful that I recognized him. And he said, good morning, Mrs. Martin, would you like a drink? Not only did I want a drink, but I needed a drink that morning. Now, it isn't easy for a woman to get up and literally undress herself in front of a group like this. I do this for one purpose and one purpose only. I pray in my heart there might be one woman here that I might be able to reach, and she doesn't have to go this far. I don't know how long that drunk lasted, whether it was three weeks, four weeks, I don't know. I'm awfully confused about it. But I reached the point in my drinking where the booze wasn't doing anything for me. I couldn't black out, and I had to face reality. I called my mother, and the captain was out to see her again, thank God. And she, I went home, and she made arrangements to ship me to Washington, D.C. Now, in Virginia, we didn't have bars. I had never seen a bar. And when I arrived in Washington, that's the paradise for any alcoholic. You see up there, if you want to drink like a lady, whatever that is, <laughs> that's what that is. You could drink up on Connecticut Avenue, and if you want to drink sort of medium class, you could drink down around 14th Street. And then, if you really hit the skids, you could get down around 9th and G. Now, I made all three places. 9th and G, as long as you could sit up in a booth and have a buck in your hand, you could get a drink. I can remember you. I was the type of drunk. When I started out drinking, I started out in one bar, and I'd pick up a few friends. I'd hit another bar and pick up a few more. It wasn't anything for me to have 10 or 15 people with me by the end of the evening. And this particular evening, we were drinking in the district, and they cut us off at 12, and we had to go out to Maryland to drink until 2. And we went out into Maryland, and of course, when they closed the bar there, I had a key to an apartment, friends of my family. And I was to check on this apartment off and on to make sure everything was all right. And I had all these newfound friends with me, and I knew they had a bar in the apartment. So I invited them all into the apartment for one more drink. Well, we cleaned out the bar, and this is six o'clock in the morning. As we're leaving, an argument started between two of the boys. And, of course, I stepped between them to separate them, and somebody hit me on the chin, and I landed on the curb. And then lights began to go on. This is in one of the better sections of Washington, D.C. Lights began to go on, and then I heard the sound that every alcoholic hates, a siren off in the distance and getting closer by the minute. Now, up there, they didn't send one car. They sent two cars and a patrol wagon. 
Now, everybody got in the patrol wagon but Millie. Now, I told you I was a Virginian and I had a lot of pride. And I told the policeman I had never been in a patrol wagon. I had no intentions of getting in. Well, he put me in and we fought all the way down to second precinct. <laughs> I did not go to jail and I thank my God for this every day. Because I've worked with a lot of women in jail. And it's not the same thing in jail for a woman that it is for a man. Thank God things are changing. But it was awfully rough. A gal has it much tougher than a man when she's drinking, believe me. A man can go out and panhandle on the street and he's called a panhandler. You let a woman go out on the street and panhandle, it's a moral charge. She's soliciting. I don't know of any restaurant that would hire a woman to wash dishes, but they'll hire a man. So women have to get their drinks many ways. But I can tell you this, anytime you see an alcoholic woman with a man, you can bet your bottom dollar she's got a bottle or the price of one. Because this is all she's looking for, is one more drink. Now, it's true this isn't all she gets, but this is all she's looking for. <laughs> I know, I've been like I had to stand the embarrassment of standing before the sergeant. And he let me give him a fictitious name and a fictitious address. And he let me get by with it. That's the only reason I don't have a police record today. But this was a horrible thing for me. When I returned to my room, I thought, my God, what can I do? All my friends drink. I must tell you this. <laughs> they talk about the willpower of an alcoholic. From the night that I was married, I never touched another drop of gin until I married Isaac Copeland. I was scared to death of gin. I knew it was a husband in every bottle. <laughs> and I never drank it. But this time, I was on liquor. And I thought, now liquor's got me into trouble. And you see, in the meantime, I had received a letter from my father, and he didn't say, Dear Mildred or Dear Millie, he just said, Mildred, as far as I am concerned, you are dead, do not return to Norfolk, do not correspond with your mother or your sisters, if you do, I will personally see that you're put away. And he didn't mean any fancy Santa's term, he meant a booby hatch up in Williamsburg, and I knew what he meant. And he signed it, Captain H.P. Tyree, not Daddy. Now, this should have done something for me. But, you know, I used to carry this around in my bag. And I could sit it at a bar. And I could whip this thing out, conjure up a couple of tears, put all the gestures in it, and then the three drinks would flow like one. <laughs> a real kind artist. 
But sitting in my room that morning, I thought, what can I do? I can't return to Norfolk. All my friends drink. I was young. All the excitement would be gone. What can I do? And I did exactly what many alcoholics think about doing. Very rarely as they do it when they're drinking, it's when they're sober and they face reality. And that's what I was doing that morning. And I slashed my wrist. And you know, I've always been grateful to God. I had many scars. Most of them disappeared through the years. But this one is still there. And I never look at my arm. I never wash my dishes or take a bath that I see that scar. That I don't bow my head and thank the God of my understanding that I'm still here. This was a horrible thing for me to do. To take the very thing that God had given me, my life. But when I started on the second arm, this one was squirting to the ceiling and I became frightened. And I called a friend of mine and she in return took me to a doctor. And as he sutured my arm, he said, young lady, I don't know what state you belong, but you need help. And when I left his office, I called a Catholic church and I made an appointment with the priest. Now, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I don't blame the church for anything. I certainly would not live in a community without churches. But they knew very little about alcoholism back then. And when I sat and talked to this young chap, his only answer to me was, come back to the church and get active and learn to drink sensibly. (laughs) Well, I walked out of his office and I thought, well, now I'm in trouble with booze. So I started drinking nothing but beer. And I get so tickled when I go on a 12-step call and a gal will tell me, well, you know, I only drink a few beers. I got into just as many fights, just as many arguments with a tummy full of beers I did with anything else. Well, every alcoholic in this room knows what happened. I went back to the booze. I had been home two years prior to this. And every time that I'd go home when the captain was out of town, see, I could go to my mother's and my father wasn't there. I'd always look up my Isaac. And this particular time I went down to look Isaac up, and he was, I knew he'd be in one of three places, and he'll tell you about that later. And he was standing on the corner, and I had never seen my eyes is unclean before. He had a three-day beard. He was dirty. And I stood there and I thought, my God, Millie, this is what you're wasting your life over? And I went back to Washington with intentions of never corresponding or communicating with Isaac again. But this particular time, I was home on vacation, 1945. And my mother had, I had two girlfriends with me, and my mother had us up for dinner. And we were staying at Virginia Beach, and on our way back to the beach, Grace said, you know, Millie, I'd like to have a drink. And I said, so would I. And if anybody knows where you can get a drink in Norfolk, Isaac Copeland does. We'll look for Isaac. Well, we walked downtown, and there he stood on the corner, clean. He had just gotten out of the hospital, which I didn't know, but he was sober. 
And you know, it's popular now, but it wasn't popular back then. He had his shirt open down the best here. Back then, he had a barrel chest. He wore a 16 and a half collar. He had a full head of curly hair. And you're going to be shocked when you think so. <laughs> and I, I've tried so, so many times in AA to do this as ladylike as I can. But when I looked at him, and the only word that comes to mind to me, he was the sexiest thing I ever laid my eyes on. <laughs> and we told him what we wanted, and he took us up to the 30th division, or to the American Legion Club to have a drink. And he was drinking Coke. And he left the table, and I said to the girls, you know, we've got plenty of money, it isn't fair, this boy works for a living, and we shouldn't let him pay for our drinks. I think I've still got a little resentment there, because I found out years later he was sitting there with $400 in his pocket. I wish I'd known it that night. <laughs> but we made a date, and he came down to the beach on Wednesday, and we walked on the boardwalk. And he said, Millie, you know, I haven't found anyone else, and you've not found anyone else. Why don't we say the heck with the families and get married? And I said, this is fine. Now, Isaac gives me the devil about this, because sometimes I forget to get rid of that first one. Um, I did get an annulment, and when all the papers were in, he was a great deal older than I was. I was married under a fictitious name. I don't know to this day how my last name was Tyree, but White was on the certificate. He was under mental observation at the Naval Hospital. He was a nut. <laughs> and he had to been to marry me, I tell you, at that time. I went back to Washington to settle up my affairs and resigned from my job. And I came back to Norfolk. And Isaac was so happy that I was coming back. He'd gotten drunk again. <laughs> Now, I'm going to tell you this. He may not, but I'm going to tell you. I was sober when we got married. He was drunk as a stumble. <laughs> you know, as I say, I hope there aren't any Jewish people here, because, I, I mean, if there are, please accept this as, as joking, tender love, really. But Isaac said to me, he's always said to me, I married him for his money. He had $13 when we got married in his bank account. He's the only poor Jew I've ever known. <laughs> now, I want to tell you what his honeymoon was like. I had uh, to be married in a gown, but in Virginia they give you a blood test, and I have always had trouble with this, and they bruised my arm quite badly. And so I had to wear a suit. And I had on a hat. Back then you wore a hat. I had on white gloves, large cassards. I had bought a magnificent negligee and gown. This was going to be the night of all nights. Well, of course, after the service, we had to have a few. Well, I awakened the next morning in bed with the hat, gloves, and cassards.
Now you would think I would say to myself, well now I finally got this man that I love, and I'll stay sober and be a good wife and a good housekeeper. This isn't way an alcoholic thing. I was so happy I had him, I stayed drunk for three years. But I was doing a different type of drinking. We were drinking at home. As long as I had a bottle and Isaac, I didn't care about anything else. And we had some rough, rough times, believe you me. I've heard a lot of boys in AA say, you know, I wish I was married to an alcoholic woman. Well, let me tell you something. You better leave it alone. If you got, if you got a good alanine, you hang on to them. Believe me. The two drunks in the same house is miserable. We'd hide liquor from each other. We'd steal from each other. And as much as I love this man, I would not give him my last drink. <laughs> Nor would he give me his. Well, Isaac found Alcoholics Anonymous. He wanted to do something about his drinking for a long time. I had not. I did not think that I was an alcoholic because Isaac drank every day. I could knock it off one or two days. And so I was convinced that I was not an alcoholic. I had never been hospitalized. I had never been in an institution. I had many, many reasons or excuses why I wasn't an alcoholic. In the meantime, I had kind his father. And you know, I think all alcoholics are kind artists. I think we're the greatest in the world. I don't know how they kind them into these drinks. I just don't believe it. <laughs> with alcoholics. I kind Isaac's father into putting me into business. Now, anytime you can kind of Jew out of that kind of money, you got to be a good kind artist. <laughs> and what did I buy? A beer tavern, what else? <laughs> and we were all daydreamers, and certainly I was. You see, I was out in the, in the residential section, and I wasn't thinking about the beer tavern itself. I was, these dreams of mine were out of this world. I was going to put a truck on the road and sell beer by the case and make a buck on the case. Now, you see, this would be normal with most normal people, but my dream was six trucks, 5,000 cases a day. I was going to really make it overnight. You see, my excuse was that my Isaac was the only Jew in Norfolk that didn't have a Cadillac, and by golly, I was going to put him in one. <laughs> Isaac never wanted a Cadillac. <laughs> never had one, and will never get one. <laughs> But Millie wanted one. I wanted an Eldorado convertible. And I wanted a long scarf that would blow in the breeze. <laughs> and I wanted to be able to go by the captain's house and give him this. <laughs> well, on the first day of December, I was denied ABC license. Now, in Virginia, oh, this had nothing to do with my reputation. It had to, it was the reputation of the place. I had really bought a Lulu. They had fights and all sorts of things that happened. So I was denied ABC license. In the meantime, Isaac had gone to AA, as I meant to say a moment ago. 
And he was going to meetings. Well, we didn't have that many meetings back then. But he was going to the little club every day or every night. And I began to complain about it. And I said, why don't you stay in the store with me? Here I'm trying to make us a million dollars and you're off the A.N. And of course, Isaac didn't want a million dollars. But he began to miss his meetings. And that was dangerous. It's dangerous for me even today to miss my meetings. Now, I can only speak for this alcoholic. But I don't mess with anything that's working. And this is working. So I, I'm just as active today as I was when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. It's important to me. He began to miss his meetings, and his thinking changed. Like your thinking will change if you leave your meetings. And as I say, on the first day of December, they denied me ABC license. And now I had a real hard feeling towards the state of Virginia. I thought, my God, my father doesn't love me. He won't accept me in his home. Now the state of Virginia won't even let me make a living. So what does an alcoholic do? Naturally, I drank. Isaac came home that night, and we went out to dinner. And I'm going to date myself again. And I immediately ordered a bottle of Carling's Ale. Now, if you young ones don't know what I'm talking about, it's green death in a bottle. You don't get drunk on it. You get like a zombie. You just float around about two foot off the ground. And I love this stuff. I drank it by the case. And when I ordered one, Isaac says, you know, Millie, I think I'll have one. And I said, well, why not? You've been going to this outfit for three months. Suddenly they taught you something, drink one or two, and leave it alone. Well, 23 days later, that was my longest and my hardest, and I pray to God my last summer. Somewhere along the way, someone had told Isaac and I that if you'd let beer or ale sit out overnight, uncapped, that it wouldn't come back up. Now, this is true if you plan to drink again. If you uncap it and let it get flat, it won't come back up. And we were sitting there drinking our flat beer, and I don't say this with any conceit. I've been married to this man for 32 years, and he has proven through the years how much he loves me. And I must tell you this, too. This, this always amazes me. There are people still in his family and in my family saying it will never work. <laughs> But sitting there that morning, I think it was the hardest thing he's ever had to say to me. He said, Millie, I don't care what you do with the rest of your life. You take what money we have and you go back to Washington. But I can't live this way anymore. I'm going to al back to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, Millie, I don't care what you do with the rest of your life. You take what money we have and you go back to Washington. But I can't live this way anymore. I'm going to al back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I became so frightened. Because, you see, this was the only thing on God's green earth that I loved. And I was losing it. And I knew I was losing it. And I said, well, Isaac, we'll meet for dinner and we'll talk about this. You see, I could always kind Isaac. I still can kind him if I don't give him a chance to think. 
I can get most anything I want. He met me for dinner, and he was of the same opinion. And I said, well, I'll go to the theater, and I'll meet you after your meeting. Well, I'd only been in the theater a short time. When he came in, and he said, this man's a real smart man. Believe me, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knew better than to ever say to Millie, you're an alcoholic. He knew what would happen. So he never mentioned my drinking. But he whispered to me, you know they're having a Christmas party, Millie, and I'd love to have you attend. All the boys had their wives there. And there weren't any alcoholic women around then, and it was rough. Let me tell you, it was tough. But I won't go into all that. I'm sure by now, over sitting there, I thought, well, I can make this sacrifice. If it's going to save my marriage, I can go and associate with this bunch of bums. That was my interpretation of AA. Now, I'm sure by now you have, a, in your mind, a very sophisticated, very attractive young lady walking into Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm going to tell you what walked in. I'm only five foot four, and I weighed 220 pounds. I had flaming red hair. You see, I tried to diet it, diet strawberry blonde and forgot the mixture and turned out to be a flaming redhead. I had on that, just for a moment, visualize this. I had on a black satin dress. Now imagine satin wrapped around that much blubber. I wore an ankle bracelet, and I'm sure some of you young ones won't know what I'm talking about. I had a cigarette holder this long. My hair was piled real high. This was to take away from this, you know, make me look taller. I had a rhinestone pin that big right here. And I found it a little later, one of the nine alcoholics said to the other, my God, that looks like a train coming through. (laughs) I walked in there with such a superior attitude, but I felt inferior to every woman in that room. As I said, there were very few alcoholic women around then. They were all, they weren't even alanine. There were just nine alcoholics back then. We had no alanine. I sat there, you see, Isaac did not lie to me. They did have a Christmas party, but they had a meeting first. And they had a gal get up and talk. And I sat there and I listened to her. And she went a lot further with her drinking than I did. She'd been on the Bowery in New York. She's from a fine family in New York. She'd really had a rough go of it. And I sat there and I thought to myself, my God, Miller, you continue to drink and this is going to happen to you. But you see, I'm so glad they changed the preamble. When I came in, the preamble read, an honest desire. They took that word out. Because certainly I was not honest when I arrived here. And certainly I wasn't going to tell that group anything about my drinking. So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous as a a non-alcoholic supporting my husband in his sobriety. 
Now you try that route in AA. That's rough. Because you see, I got a big mouth. And I know it. I don't know about you, but I'll be honest about it. Even today, if we get into a crowd or a group and somebody tells one of their drinking experiences, I'm going to try to top it with one of mine. And I knew that would happen back then. So I stayed away from the alcoholic. And I did all the things that were wrong then, and they're wrong today in Alcoholics Anonymous. I sat around and I gossiped. And you know gossip, even if it's true, is vicious. I was critical. And I have seen, and I'm not trying to frighten you, I just want you to think about it. When you've got a little gossip to repeat, or if you want to be critical, Go to that person. Don't tell another person. Because I have seen criticism and gossip run a drunk out of here to drink again, and I've buried them. So think about it before you're critical or you gossip about another member. I sat around that club for some three months. But you see, the God of my understanding, I think he has a great sense of humor. And I think he said to himself, you know, that little Irishman's in trouble, and I better do something to straighten her out. Now, I'm not going to tell you, because they did 12, a change of 12 steps since I've been in. It used to be a spiritual experience, or a spiritual yeah, experience in that spiritual awakening. I'm not going to tell you that I had the type of thing that Bill W. had. I think it was the first time in my adult life that I let anything spiritually touch me. Isaac and I were privileged to go to Natural Bridge. If you've not been there, if you get a chance, go. This is not a man-made bridge. This bridge was put there by nature. And millions and millions of cars go over this bridge. We were sitting there that night in total darkness. And I had intelligence enough to know that it was a record. And the voice was coming from the record. And this boy said, he said, there will be light. And there was light. And lights were thrown from every direction on this mammoth creation of God. For the first time in my adult life, I let the tears flow. You see, many years before this, I had found that tears, a crying woman, never got a free drink. So I dried my tears up. But that night, I just let them drip from my chin. And as we walked out, I said to my Isaac, I'm going back to Alcoholics Anonymous and admit that I'm an alcoholic or I'm going to get drunk. And his only answer was, thank God. Well, I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had step one, step three, and immediately jumped to step twelve. Now, I had a big book, and I kept it on my coffee table, and I kept it dusted in case somebody walked in, but I had never bothered to read it. I jumped to step 12, and I, I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes, but I stayed sober. But I went into homes that I had not been asked into. I was thrown out of them. I went into bars and tried to drag people off a bar stool that didn't want to get off a bar stool. 
Ada and I, by now, the speaker that I was speaking of a moment ago, she was my sponsor. I don't know where she is today. I pray for her every day. She was one of the unfortunate ones. She didn't make this program. I found her a few years back, but she didn't want to do anything about it. And I felt so helpless. I thought, my God, this woman has given me my life, and I can do nothing for her. But I try to practice what she's taught me, and maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. But every Wednesday, Ada and I would get the big book and steal all the literature we could out of the club and a carton of cigarettes, and we'd go down to the city jail. I thought all women that were in jail were there for drinking. I found out later many were there for many other things. <laughs> and I got into a lot of trouble by taking them home. Um, but I've said this over and over again. I don't know of any Salvation Army lassie anywhere in the country to beat the drum any harder than Millie Copeland did every Wednesday. Admit you're an alcoholic, fine God, that's it. I had no message. But as I say, it kept me sober. And I continued to go to my meetings and listen. Women began to come into AA, and I had other alcoholic women. I want to say this in protection of the alcoholic woman. When a woman comes into Alcoholics Anonymous, don't expect her to be a lady when she arrives here. Because it's tough out there. As I said a moment ago, it's rough for a woman. But I can tell you this. If you love them enough, they'll become ladies. One experience in particular I must share with you I don't want to hurt any one group, but I happened to be speaking at a group. And this boy came over and said to me, you know, Millie, we've got a new gal in the group, and the women don't want anything to do with her. And I said, what's wrong with her? He said, well, she had to make her living on the street, or her drinking money on the street. And I said, so what's new? This has nothing to do with it. And so I went over and shared what I could with her. And I told her if she was ever in my area to get in touch with me. I corresponded with her, and some six months later, she married a boy in the group, and he was in the construction business, and they moved to our area. And she wrote and told me she was moving to our area, and I had a new baby. I don't know what you call them down here or here. Some places they call them pigeons. Some of them call them babies. They'll both do the same thing in your lap if you're not careful. <laughs> but I had a new baby, and if you, if you sponsor people right, you know, they'll do just about anything you want them to do. And I told Ronnie, I said, this gal is coming, and I gave her a little of a background. I said, now, I don't know about you, but I know about Millie Copeland. I'm going to make a personal friend out of this girl. I'm not just going to share AA with her. She's going to be in my home. I plan to share my life with her. And as I say, if you train them right, Boney said to me, well, whatever you do, Millie, I'll do. And this is what we did. She left that area a year later, and I didn't see her. Five years later, I was in another town, 
the most attractive girl came over. She'd gotten all the dye out of her hair and his natural color. Just a lovely, lovely girl. She was teaching Sunday school. And guess what? She was a president of the local garden club. And this was in Virginia, and I'd have given my right arm to tell them who their president was. <laughs> But you can love a drunk sober, believe you me. What it's like today, I think my first dividend in Alcoholics Anonymous, as I said a short time ago, uh, there were very few women in AA, and so any program we had that needed a woman, Millie had to do it. You see, I believe what the boys told me. Millie, if you want to stay sober, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and I did everything they told me to do, and it worked. But we had a radio program, and I had to be on the program. And my mother knew that I was to be on the program. And she listened to it, and my father recognized my voice. And he said, May, turn the radio off. And he listened to the entire program. And when it was over, he said to my mother, Tell Mildred to come home. I went back home. My father and I had 13 wonderful, wonderful years together, a greater relationship than we'd ever had. You see, I love this man too much, and I realize that today. I'm a girl, and by the time I was eight years old, I could steer a tug and read a compass as well as he could. This is the way I learned to smoke, by picking his pipe up and puffing on it. I had an unhealthy love for this man. I wanted to be something special in his life. And he had 12 children, and I couldn't be special. I realized. And he had 12 children, and I couldn't be special. I realized this now. But you see, you people gave me 13 wonderful years with my dad. I learned to grow in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't do it overnight. Don't expect, and I, I fuss about this all the time in AA, if you've got two years of sobriety and you're talking to, or ten years of sobriety, and you're talking to a guy or a gal that's got two years, don't expect them to be thinking like you're thinking at ten years. Try to remember what you were thinking like at two years. This is when I try to practice. When I'm talking to a brand new gal with six months and she's confused, I try to remember how confused I was at six months and try to relate to her. I had to do a lot of things that I didn't particularly want to do. When I took my fourth step and I took a personal inventory. Now, this is my interpretation of a, a fourth step. Everybody has a right and an opinion in AA. But you see, in the beginning, I thought it meant to talk about all the places I'd been and all the things I had done. And this wasn't true. I had to go inside and look at Millie as a person. And I found a lot of words that I didn't like. I was envious. I was self-centered. I had an ego that would fill this room. Now, I said that I felt inferior. When I'd go in a restaurant sober, I had to sit in a booth 
drunk, I'd sit at the main table or even dance on it. And you know, I said something to my Isaac about this one time, and he said, you know, Millie, you don't feel inferior. You're conceited. Why do you think that everybody stops eating in a restaurant when you make your grand entrance? And he was right. He was right. It was conceit. I didn't like these words, but I had to do something about them to get comfortable. I'm still working on them. I don't know. I know that I'll never be perfect. I don't want to be perfect. But I continue to work on my character defects, and it keeps me happy. Now, there are a couple of things that bother me, and I'm going to repeat them because they do bother me in AA. I hate to see one of our boys or one of our gals go out and have trouble. The man said it last night, this is a disease, and any disease you can have a relapse. I can remember when I'd go on a drunk and call my mother and curse her out, and then I'd have to suffer the remorse and the guilt and call her back and apologize. It was the hardest thing I had to do. And I see one of our boys, one of our gals go out and have trouble, and they come back and you hear remarks like, well, do you think you're going to make it this time? you think you really want this? This isn't what they're looking for. You know, I don't know anywhere in the big book or in the literature that says this is for sober alcoholics. It's for an alcoholic trying to get sober. And who is trying any harder than the guy or the gal that has trouble? And they have to walk back through that door and face you and I. It must be living hell for them. I don't know about you, but I know about Millie Copeland. My job is to be here with my arms and my heart open and say, welcome home. Somewhere you missed the boat. Maybe together we can find it. This is my responsibility for the rest of my life. I'm so grateful for the many, many things that you've given me. You've given me such a peace of mind and serenity. You've given me such a great love. You know, as I said a moment ago, I've never, never given this program to anybody. I don't feel that anybody's an expert on this program. Certainly I'm not. The only thing that I can share with the drunk is love and understanding and my experiences. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you how to work this program, nor am I going to tell you how to make a 12-step call, because you're going to learn through your own experiences. You're going to make a lot of mistakes, the new ones that are here, but don't let them bother you. You're going to grow. It gets better and better all the time. My life is just so full today. We're very fortunate. We live on the ocean in a tourist area. And our phone, like most things in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, you can't get people to volunteer. And for years, we had no contact on the other banks. And I finally said to Isaac, the heck with this. So we changed that phone to a business phone and listed it in the book as Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And everybody that comes through there contacts Isaac and I. And we keep a coffee pot on 24 hours a day. There's never a day that goes by in my life there isn't an alcoholic in my home. Many of them sober, many of them drunk. I've said this over and over again. I'm grateful to every member of Alcoholics Anonymous, or everyone that's walked through the doors. Because, you see, each one has taught me something. Many have taught me how to stay sober. Many of them have taught me how to drink. I don't need to know any more about drinking. But I get something from everybody that walks into AA. As I told you a moment ago, my life is full. I have benefited through the years. And for any new ones here, let me tell you, it gets better and better all the time. It's so wonderful to be able to lie down in the afternoon and take a nap. It's so great to be able to look two legs straight in the eye first thing in the morning. <laughs> to be able to hold a steady glass of water in your hand without sloshing it. These are all benefits in my life. Material things I could care less. We have less today than we had when we were drinking. Materially. But this is not important. We've got everything we need. Now, I'm just going to give me the devil for this because he sometimes uses it, but it, it hits me right now. Never have I been, since I've been sober, without a roof over my head, groceries in my icebox, and a buck in my pocket. Not one day. Many times, only a buck. But I've always had a buck. God has certainly looked after me. You people have taught me a great deal. And I just pray in my heart that I'll always remain teachable in AA. That I never get to be an expert on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I'm not. I want to always be teachable. And I am, as far as I know, today. I don't know what the future holds for me. But I want to thank each one of you in this room because you've contributed to my sobriety today. I know that what I am is God's gift to me. And what I become is my gift to God. And I thank my God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.